In a little over 14 years of parenting, I've, I've learned that it's generally helpful to, to be honest with your children. If it's going to hurt, tell them it's going to hurt. It's better to tell them it's going to hurt than to say it's not, and then it does. We'll apply that to pastoring today. The following reading is our sermon text for today, and I think it's going to hurt a little this morning. Be warned up front. A lesson from 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, and wood for the wood as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people? that we should be able to give as generously as this. Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. Good morning. How are you guys today? Good. Today's going to be a little preview of Sunday school. So when you guys had Sunday school last time, you talked about the creation of the world, right? And you talked about the fall into sin. Now today, you're going to hear a little bit about Cain and Abel and the flood. And the reason we're talking about it in church today is because it's actually very connected to what we're going to talk about in our sermon. So Cain and Abel were two brothers, the, the sons of Adam and Eve, but they were born after the fall into sin. They became sinners right away. And their sin showed itself in in their lives. God had blessed Cain and Abel with the ability to work, with the ability to earn a living. Now, Abel, he was a, a rancher, so to speak. He had sheep that he raised. But Cain was a farmer, and he raised crops. Now, because God had given them the ability to work and had given them the ability to 
to, to raise crops and to, to take care of the sheep so that they would have babies and the sheep would become more and more and more, they were going to give some of their crops and some of their sheep back to God as an offering. Well, Abel gave the best that he had, the firstborn, the, the biggest, the fattest, the healthiest sheep that he had. And the Lord was pleased because he gave the best that he had back to the Lord who gave it to him in the first place. But Cain just took some of his vegetables, some of his crops, and he gave it to the Lord. It wasn't the first part. It wasn't the best part. It was just a part. And the Lord wasn't so pleased with Cain's offering because Cain didn't give out of thankfulness to the God who had given him everything that he had. And this made Cain mad that the Lord wasn't happy with his offering. And so he actually killed his brother Abel. The first murder... Sin entered the world and it had an impact on people. It had an impact on how they lived their lives. It even led to the death of a human being as one person was murdered. And after you talk about Cain and Abel, then you're going to talk about the flood. You might think, boy, how could we have time to talk about all those things? Well, it's what we're focusing on today. In the flood, God preserved eight human beings. Yes, he destroyed many. But he preserved eight because he had promised that one of Adam and Eve's descendants, a human being, would be the savior of the whole world to come and fix the sin problem. If God had just destroyed all the sinful human beings, then he would have broken his promise to send a savior. In Cain and Abel, we see how much we need a savior. And in the flood, you're going to see God keep that promise of a savior alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for keeping your promise to send a Savior from sin and death. Today we, we see our great need for a Savior. We see sinful attitudes that permeate our hearts. We see the reality of death that draws near for all of us. Help us today to see our great need for Jesus. Help these young people to, to better appreciate your plan of salvation, the need shown through the account of Cain and Abel, and the promise kept alive as you spared Noah and his family. Help, help us all to better appreciate who Jesus is and what he means for us, for forgiveness, life, and salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've read through your, your Old Testament lately, you get through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and then you get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and I wouldn't at all be surprised if you found that a bit challenging, because when you get to 1st and 2nd Chronicles, it seems kind of like you're repeating everything you just did. I just read this story, I just read this story, I just read this story, time and time again is, is what you might think as you're going through First and Second Chronicles. What's helpful to keep in mind as we begin today is the difference between the Samuels and Kings books, which kind of go together, and the two Chronicles books. So really, it's the audience. The audience is what has changed. Samuel and Kings is written before the exile in Babylon. It's written to the people to the kings to record what's happened in relatively recent history, and it's got all the bloody details. 
David's public sin, where he lusted after a woman who was not his wife, slept with her, and then murdered her husband to cover it up. Things like that. Examples of shocking, brutal, sometimes grotesque sin. You see example after example after example through the books of Samuel and and the kings. People sinning, kings sinning. This is why the threat of exile is there for you. But then in Chronicles, you see a much cleaner picture of God's people. King David, for example, squeaky clean. A picture of the promised son of David, his descendant who would be the savior of the world. Chronicles is written by the chronicler to the people after the exile, to the people who are coming back from Babylon who are wondering, who are we and what is left for us as we return to the land that God promised on oath to our ancestors? What of this promise that God made to send a savior for the sins of the world? Who are we and where are we at in regard to God's promise? And so with that in mind, just a little context from 1 Chronicles. I'm going to read to you the very beginning of chapter 17. King David has this aha moment where he's in his palace of cedar, and he looks out and he sees the Ark of the Covenant in a tent. And he says, why is this? This should not be. You might remember when we did that left-hand timeline last week, we, we set Jesus is the thumb and then Daniel and David right? Well, Moses is the ring finger, 1500 BC. That's when the the people were wandering in the wilderness, and that's when they established the tent, because it had to be portable. So their worship place was a portable worship place, a tent. But now David is sitting in his palace after having won victories, secure. They're established in the land God promised, and he's saying, why is the ark of God still in a tent? This doesn't make any sense. Listen to the very beginning of 1 Chronicles chapter 17. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded the shepherd of my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He goes on, but long story short, God tells David, you are not going to build my temple. Your son, Solomon, will do it. So now we fast forward to our our sermon text from 1 Chronicles 29. This is the last chapter of 1 Chronicles. The very last thing that happens in this chapter is the death of King David. And, And so this is the end of David's life. He is making sure that Solomon is ready to go for the monumental task that lies before him. And you might have noticed in your worship folder that there's a couple verses missing in our text today. We, we did verses 1 and 2, and then we jumped to verse 10. I want to take a moment to read you the portion in the middle. So King David has just promised to give much from the wealth of the kingdom, all the things needed 
to build the temple of the Lord? Listen to what he says in verse 3. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings. For the gold work and the silver work and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Then the leaders of families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work on the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. When did it happen that we became so private in regard to our stewardship? How did that come to be? When did it become commonplace for the Christian to want to do everything that they could to make sure that no one else knew anything about their personal finances or how they support the work of the church? When did that become normal? When did that become, quote-unquote, good? What are we afraid of? I ask that with all sincerity. Why would it be bad if someone knew what you have? Why would it be bad if someone knew what you give or don't give? When we manage our personal blessings, the time that God has given to us as individuals, the talents that God has given to us as individuals, the money that God has given to us as individuals, do we not start with the whole? Do we not start by looking at what it is that has been entrusted to us? Do we not start by looking at all the money that God has given to us and how we will manage that? Do we not start by looking at the time that we have today? How will I manage today? And if I have a tomorrow, how will I manage it? And if I have a next week, how will I manage it? And the gifts we have, do we not look at the whole and ask ourselves, how? How can I use the talents that God has given to me? Everything you are and everything that you have does not belong to you. It's the Lord's. Every single bit. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. 
How popular would it be if the leaders at Mount Olive said, we're going to budget differently this year? Instead of looking at what we spent last year and trying to figure out what we're going to do next year, we're going to start by how much you plan to give. And we'll look at what you plan to give, and then we'll work backwards. We'll say, here's the whole, here's how much we think we'll have, and then we'll figure it out from there. How would that go over? It's been discussed. You know what the feedback I received was? Well, I would feel like I had to give it then, and that'd be improper motivation. Or, or what if I said I was going to give X amount, but then I, I ended up not being able to give X amount? Do you think you'd be billed? If you gave an amount and you said, here's how much I intend to give, if the Lord doesn't change what he has entrusted to me, here's how much I think I would be able to, to give to support the work of the Lord, do you think there'd be a statement and we'd be checking in to see if you're actually doing it? Would it be possible that you might set a number you think is reasonable and perhaps the Lord blesses you so richly that you're able to give even more than you thought? And if the Lord chose to give you less than you thought and you had to give less, what would be so bad about that? You don't need to open up your bank accounts and communicate to every single person in the pew every single dollar that you had, but if you did, what would be so scary about that? Would it reveal something about your heart? Why is it that we can't talk about money? Why are pastors so afraid to open their mouths and talk about the management of what is God's? I don't care how much you have or don't have, it's not yours. Period. And it's time that you came to grips with that. What you have has been entrusted to you so that you can serve your God and your neighbor. And for many of us, there are neighbors living under our our roof. That includes the spouse, the children, whoever God has entrusted to your care. And you would do well to take that into consideration as you manage all that God has given to you. Good stewardship does not mean dumping all the money God gave you back into the church coffers. If you have others entrusted to your care, like I do, eight other neighbors living under my roof, I can't put it all back in the church bank account. That would be foolish and poor stewardship. I have neighbors to serve in my house with the money that has been entrusted to my care. But would it be bad if you knew how much comes here? You already know how much comes to me. It's in the budget every year. You know exactly how much I make. Would it be bad if you knew exactly how much I gave back? Whose glory would that be to? Mine? Foolishness. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow, without hope. Lord God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building, for building you a temple, for your holy name, comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Can we rejoice with David? I think there's this idea in our, in our minds and in our hearts that 
if our giving is public, the one who gave more than the other will somehow receive glory that they shouldn't have. They shouldn't have the glory. You don't give to get your name on a building. You don't give out of what God has given to you to bring glory to yourself. Christian public generosity only brings glory to the God who gave in the first place. If one of you has millions and gives millions, it's not to your glory that you got the millions or that you gave the millions. It's always to the glory of God who first gave the millions so that you could give the millions. And if you're the kind of person to whom God has given tens and you give tens, it's not to your glory that you gave a large percentage of the tens that God has given to you. It's to God's. And to God's alone. One of my great concerns about serving in this part of our church body is the lack of called workers being produced from our churches. It's mind-boggling. You look at the size of the ministries in the Fox River Valley area. You look at how called worker heavy they are, how many pastors and teachers are needed to sustain the work. How many tens of thousands of people are coming week after week to be served with law and gospel and how few of the children of these churches go on to be pastors and teachers? Is it not a valuable use of time for a young man or a young woman to consider using gifts and talents and time to serve the Lord? When was the last time Mount Olive encouraged a young man, a young woman to consider full-time gospel ministry, using their gifts to serve the Lord in his church? It's not just our church. The numbers don't lie. Yeah, we have a shortage of pastors and teachers and staff ministers, but the churches in our area don't send anyone to be pastors and teachers and staff ministers. We would do well to look inside our hearts and ask, why is that? Are we teaching our children to be bad stewards? Are we teaching them to value the wrong things? What do we say about the payoff between a pastor's salary and the work that he has the privilege of doing. Who are we? I'll tell you who we are. In verse 3, King David used a word that is rarely used in the Old Testament. He said, Besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures. It's that word, treasures. Only used four times before here. Take a listen to this instance from Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You are the Lord's treasured possession. How could that be? Sinful as you are, sinful as I am, how could we possibly be God's treasured possession? Listen to the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Ephesus. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession 
to the praise of his glory. How is it that you could be God's treasured possession to the praise of his glory? I'll tell you how. It's because God bought you. God has purchased you. You belong to him. He sent his son Jesus to pour out everything he had, everything he is, and everything he did, all bottled up in the form of his blood and poured out as a payment for you so that you could be purchased, bought. You are God's treasured possession. You are priceless to him. And in just a few minutes, many of you are going to come forward and you are going to drink the very price of your salvation. The very blood of Christ poured out for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins, including the times when you have been a poor steward. You will drink it and you will leave confident knowing that you belong to God. You are his his priceless treasure. That has to have an impact. That has to change how we view our stuff. That has to change how we view our time and the gifts that God has given to us. I don't know what it looks like here. But I know God has richly blessed us in so many ways. And I know that God will get the glory for whatever it is that we do. And so we close with David's prayer. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts Loyal to you. Amen.